latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz, and we've got a lot to get to over the course of this podcast. First up, I'm going to be joined by John Fanta from the Big East Digital Network. He was in Chicago last week for the Combine. We're going to get his take on a couple of key players who have some important decisions to make and could affect potentially the national championship race next season. And then Bill Self, the head coach of Kansas, the Hall of Famer, will join me, as well as St. Joseph's Phil Martelli. And before we get to our guests, I want to get a quick update on the NBA Draft Combine that occurred last week in Chicago. I'm pleased to be joined by John Fanta from the Big East Digital Network. He's the host of the Big East Shootaround, which you certainly can check out on all your social media properties connected to the Big East. And John, you were there on the ground in Chicago. Let's first deal with the defending national champs from Villanova, Dante DiVincenzo, 31 points in the national championship game, the MVP of the Final Four, and Amari Spellman. Uh, what did you see first, let's take on Dante, that may lead you, maybe leaning that he might stay in the draft? I don't know if I'm speaking for you here, but what did you see? An outstanding vertical. He was tied right at the top of that. And a confidence factor, Andy. In the five-on-five action, he, he was on fire, uh, whether it was with his defense or just making the right plays. Uh, he did a really good job of staying efficient. And I, I don't think that he tried to play out of his shoes. And that's the biggest thing when, when talking to him, when talking to people from NBA organizations, they love the way that Dante DiVincenzo plays. And it's hard to believe that he is a sixth man, a sixth man on this Villanova team. And he even acknowledged that his life changed on the night of that national championship game. It almost begs the question, would he be in this position right now without that night? And Dante almost admitted to us, yeah, I, I don't know if I would be in this position. It, it's just incredible what he's done. And I could tell you that he really impressed. He was one of the biggest winners from the combat. And all signs point to DiVincenzo's athleticism, his confidence factor, and the fact that his hype train is as high as it could be. That points to the idea that he is staying in this draft, but we shall see. Yeah, I I think if you look to a year ago, uh, Gonzaga's Zach Collins, you know, he had a great NCAA tournament, great semifinal game before they went and lost to North Carolina in the national championship game. And he rode that to the draft, and he ends up going to Portland in the first round. Um, Dante, I thought, had much more consistency than someone like Zach Collins. He wasn't sort of someone that popped out of nowhere, you know, as a freshman. Obviously, he's an experienced player, maybe didn't start, but still certainly uh, was able to contribute, and a better athlete. And I think that sort of showed, from what I could see through Chicago, but obviously we saw that throughout the course of the NCAA tournament. You know, it was the week before in Boston where he had two of the most significant dunks, if you remember, in their game against Texas Tech that I thought separated Villanova from the Red Raiders. Uh, you know, so he, he had other moments, not just at the Final Four. So, all right, let's assume, because I agree with you, I think he may stay in. What about Amari Spellman? Amari Spellman showed ups and downs in the combine, and that's the biggest takeaway from a guy that's just coming off of his first year. Remember, he's a little bit older because he had that ineligibility year and had to sit out. But for Omari, Andy, he is a very good perimeter threat for being a big guy. But getting down low and being physical with guys like Azabuki, with guys like McCoy from UNLV, in the combine, Omari had a little bit of trouble being able to get it done down low. But this is a kid that is 
so smart. Uh, he's got incredible maturity for being as young as he still is. And we talked to him, and, and I did say, what's your thought process here with if you are picked as a second rounder? And, and he said, look, it's not about the first contract. It's about getting to that second contract. And, and he dove into that. So he does have a very challenging decision because he's very confident in himself. He's going to talk it over with his mother. But he said, look, I feel like I'm an NBA player right now. Uh, I still think that, and he admitted this, he's not a finished product. The biggest thing that Omari's wrestling with is, can he finish off that development with direction from the NBA, or should it come from Jay Wright? And that's what he has to make his mind up with, and he said he'll be talking to executives about that here in the next week. Well, and it is a major decision because he's going to be in the G League if he goes. Uh, there's no question. He's going to have to earn it the hard way to get to the NBA. Can he do it? Of course he can. We're seeing plenty of examples in the NBA playoffs of players who were not highly touted coming out of college uh, and making their way to being major contributors or good role players mm-hmm. or rotation players. So if he's willing to put in that effort and deal with the sort of ups and downs of going through the G League, uh, then, you know, then stay in it. But, you know, sometimes I think that what we're finding is that uh, – and this is also why with the new NCAA rule that may come in, may, about if you could go through the draft, get undrafted, and return to school, I still wonder, okay, how many players will do that because when they get the taste – of being at an NBA combine, doing an NBA workout, being around NBA people, it's hard for them to want to come back to being a student athlete. And that's why mm-hmm. I think that number is going to be pretty small. And the longer, you know, it's now been stretched out to May 30th. Okay, it used to be really right after Chicago. They got to make the decision. Now you've got, you know, almost two weeks of potential workouts to really sort right. of lather in that NBA feeling. I think it's going to be harder for these kids to make the decision to come back. It becomes even tougher. And let's look at Omari Spellman's situation. He's coming off a national championship. He's playing for the winningest program in America. I mean, there's not a better college situation than the one that Omari Spellman would be if he came back to Villanova. You're talking about a Big East player of the year front runner, a guy that can be an All-American. There's no question about it. But the fact that he's wrestling that, that he's wrestling that versus being a second-round pick potentially in the NBA draft, I think that that speaks volumes about this process. And for Omari, on the first day of the combine, Andy, he looked comfortable in the first couple minutes of five-on-five. He's taking threes. Uh, He's making them. And he's a good perimeter threat. On day two, we saw him go more to the basket, attempt to try to make something happen inside. And his footwork and those other intangibles just aren't, all the way there, and that's when he talks about I'm not a finished product. But you can tell right there is those NBA folks talking to him about what they'd like to see from him, and we saw what he called a decent combine for him. And that leaves him with a very difficult decision, one that I don't think any of us can can put a fair assessment on because I cannot fault a kid for thinking about trying to fulfill that dream. And figuring out a way to make this work at the professional level, if that's G League or whatever it is. And and let's be honest, if he comes back as good as he could be, he wouldn't have Jalen Brunson feeding him, getting attention, or potentially Dante DiVincenzo, uh, or Bridges, Mikhail Bridges. So, 
yes, he could have a great year, but he's going to have to almost work harder for it because now all the attention will be on Spellman. Sometimes we forget that when you take these other players off the court, how the dynamic changes, you know, certainly for all of that. But let's take the other players off the court in the Big East. Let's take Angel Delgado off the court from Seton Hall. And the conference does not have a lot of guys that can bang down low, that can make things happen in the post. That's one thing. The conference has been guard heavy, but in terms of true big guys, Omari Spellman could shine in a Big East that's retooling next year, a conference that loses a bunch of stars, Marcus Foster, Keelan Martin, Trayvon Blewett, the list goes on and on, where it's going to be an extra emphasis on if you've got a stud, well, you're, you're going to get wins because that's what it's going to take. And Omari Spellman can still be a stud. I think that he benefited off of those players around him. I think Dante DiVincenzo did as well. Uh, but the cases are different. Dante DiVincenzo looked like a ready product. Omari Spellman admitted he's not a finished product. All right, let's go a little beyond the Big East for a moment here. Uh, Kevin Herter, another player that's going to have to make a – you know, major decision for Maryland. Uh, Bruno Fernando, his teammate, by the way, also has to make that decision. So you got two players from Maryland that really could change the dynamic of that team in the Big Ten. Uh, you had a chance to see uh, Herder for sure, and I, I, I don't know if you saw Fernando, but I mean, Herder, th- th- that, you know, give a sense of where you think he could be uh, in this process as well. Well, it sounds like Maryland is holding its breath on Kevin Herder because he was pretty sharp in the combine. He's one of the big winners from this uh, was very good uh, on pull-up jumpers and, and got a lot of rave reviews on his shot-making ability. Uh, it was funny watching Dante DiVincenzo guard him throughout the combine, but Herter shot the ball very well on individual drills. And this is a guy that has actually had a torn ligament in his dominant right hand, but it didn't matter. He did a nice job in five-on-five action. And he's got such a high IQ. Tell you what, it's tough for Maryland to be thinking about this because Kevin Herter was very impressive, is one of the winners from this combine, and is a guy that you know is visiting with teams that are talking about him potentially being that fringe first-round type pick. So we'll see if he decides to capitalize now or, or awaits this step. Uh, it's not going to be an easy decision because Andy – he helped his cause at the Combine even more so than people, I think, originally thought. And one other player, John, uh, that I know you're familiar with. Uh, actually, there's going to be another one I'm going to throw at you behind this because you got some good information that I want to definitely uh, pick your brain on. Number one, Kyrie Thomas uh, from Creighton. He decides to stay in the draft. That happened before the Combine. Uh, what was your reaction to that decision? Not surprised at all because Kyrie Thomas is one of the elite defenders in this NBA draft class. Uh, and, and that's shown through a wingspan that's just phenomenal. Uh, I mean, a six foot ten wingspan, he, he's off the charts for being a, a six foot three and a half wing. This is a guy that has incredible versatility to guard the opposing team's best player. I, I think that there's a lot of Avery Bradley in him. I think there's some Tony Allen in him. So he's a top 20, top 25 pick. Uh, I really do like Kyrie Thomas. And this past year, he was able to evolve his game offensively. Andy, and we both know Greg McDermott. I think that one big thing to look at, um, for those that don't know a lot about Creighton men's basketball, they're one of the top offensive teams year in and year out. And 
that sets you up for success. Notice what Creighton's got here. They've got three first-round picks in the last five years, including <laughs> Doug McDermott. But you go with Justin Padden last year, and now Kyrie Thomas is a first-rounder in my mind this year. And I think it has to do with the style of play that the Blue Jays play with. And for Kyrie Thomas, what gives him a different dimension is the defensive capability. So I was not surprised at all. I think that he is ready for the NBA, and I think that he is not a, is not a guy that maybe will be a star but a really good role player on a team in the NBA down the road. And, and lastly, John, uh, Shamari Pons, not invited to the Combine, uh, had two of the most unbelievable games this past season in helping St. John's shock the world, essentially, by beating Duke at home and then following it up with a road win at Villanova. Publicly has not come out yet in terms of what he's going to do, uh, but to me it's a no-brainer. You would think he'd come back and potentially be a Big East Player of the Year. What are you hearing on Shamari Pons? All signs point to him returning to Queens. This is a situation that when he first said he was going to test the waters, that's what the the vibe was around this. And in talking to people around St. John's staff, they seem to be uh, of the belief that Shamari Pons is going to return to St. John's. Uh, you, you can't look. you got to look at the situation that Shamari's facing. He, he's trying to see and gauge where he needs to be. And I think more than anything, these workouts are about gauging where you need to get your game to. And he can come back to St. John's. He will be the Big East preseason player of the year, in my opinion, if he comes back, because I do think he's the best player in the league. And he's playing with Justin Simon and Marvin Clark, two guys that really made strides this past year for St. John's. There's going to be pieces in place for Shamari to try to build and, and get his exposure even even further. So I think that this is all part of that cause, to see where he needs to get his game to. And so you combine those workouts with the fact that he's, he's being coached by a couple of guys who know a thing or two about the game in Chris Mullen and Mitch Richmond. That's a setup for a guy to be an NBA first-rounder in another year or two. We'll see. Uh, but I, I see him coming back. I see him playing next season. And then I think he'll be ready to go with that process. John Fanta, a wealth of information. I appreciate you joining me here on March Madness 365. John from the Big East Digital Network and the host of the Big East Shootaround. you got to check it out on all your Big East social media platforms. Thanks for joining me, John. Andy, college hoops never stop. Thanks for having me. And when we come back here on March Madness 365, Kansas head coach Bill Self. Now joining me here on March Madness 365, Kansas head coach Bill Self. And Bill, since the Final Four, what have been some of the most important decisions that you've had to make with the program? You know what? We probably as few right now, Andy, as we've had to make in a while. You know, the, the situ- we, we signed one youngster uh, uh, late, but, but he had committed to us in, in, uh, in January. So that really wasn't a surprise. We, we were pretty much settled in with our early recruiting class. We signed three early and then the one that committed to us in January. You know, we've had a, a situation where there wasn't a lot of decisions being made because four of my guys that started, you know, two of them walked in and said they want to definitely go through the combine and sign with an agent. And the other two were seniors. And so it really just left this one kid, uh, Yudoka Azabuki, to, to determine, you know, what he wanted to do. So there's been less balls in the air uh, uh, this spring than there has been a, a lot of years. But, but uh, 
you know, the, the, the big thing with us, I think, is, you know, we, we've been really fortunate, and, and, and you know this, it's, it's like when we lose a bunch of guys, we've had some guys waiting in the wings that's been really role players and turned out to be, you know, primary guys for us, and, and we had to have a good spring with, with, uh, with three or four of our guys, and I think, I think that happened. So who has, who has uh, stood out in that sense to where you feel – pretty comfortable well I think well first of all Udokas so much better than where he was even four months ago three months ago Diedrich Lawson's really good player we set out last year he's from Memphis and he's taken his whole you know his body and everything KJ's been Lawson his brother's been really solid for set out this year and and then then the two kids that I think have been really impressive is a freshman we had Marcus Garrett which you know most freshmen make the biggest I mean most kids make the biggest jump between their freshman and sophomore year and then we had a freshman set out this past year also that started at Cal uh, last year, Charlie Moore. And so, you know, even though you look at it, well, we could lose all five starters and we will lose at least four. What do they have coming back? And the reality is we got uh, quite a bit coming back because we had those three setting out last year. You've done that more lately. I mean, Malik Newman, you know, you've had the situation where uh, you've sort of mixed and matched with the roster. What have you seen when these guys have sat out in terms of their commitment to getting better that's really helped them and this program over the last couple of years? Well, I think from a, from, from, you know, they, you know, where they transfer from, wherever they came from, you know, they did some really great things where they came from. I mean, you cannot say that, you know, guys weren't coached or anything. That, that's not true. Our culture may be different in, in how we go about things in their culture, but that doesn't make ours better than theirs. But but in, in our situation, it seems like the guys that can come in and and, and not have the pressure uh, uh, to perform immediately, especially if they're coming off a, a stint where maybe they didn't feel like they did quite as well as they could uh, at the previous school, it, it just makes a world of difference for, for a youngster to set out and be comfortable. And by, by the time February gets there, you know he's he's disappointed he's not playing, but he's he, he can see the benefit of setting out and 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 changing their body and focusing in on what the deficiencies are. Where sometimes you you always do that, but sometimes when you're when you're playing and things like that, may, maybe you can't give strength training the same emphasis that you could because you know may, maybe it's a weight gain situation or a weight loss situation. So I think it's been real beneficial. It helped Malik. And then, and then if it, if it helps these three that we had uh, setting out this past year, we'll be in pretty good shape. You had back-to-back Player of the Year candidates, Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, uh, certainly national and Big 12. Uh, what are the chances you have someone like that on this roster for next season? I actually think we do. I actually think that depending on what Udoka does, uh, but, but Diedrich Lawson is, is a guy that, that could compete for Conference Player of the Year honors I, uh, in addition to the Udoka. And, and then uh, we have a freshman coming in, you know, uh, Devon Dotson, uh, uh, David McCormick, we're McDonald's All-Americans and, and, uh, and that. But we have one freshman coming in, uh, Quentin Grimes, that, that, uh, from Houston, that may be a guy that, that could be mentioned for one of the pre- premier freshmen in our league as well. So I, I think we got a nice blend of, 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 uh, of guys, uh, but we're just going to be a lot younger and more inexperienced. So every year someone thinks it could be the year that you don't win the Big 12 again is 14 in a row. What will it take for this group to come together early enough to win a 15th in a row when you got some teams, especially your rival K-State, they got everyone back essentially from that Elite Eight. Uh, I mean, this could be one of the more challenging 
Big 12 titles to win. Oh, well, they, they, they all are. The league's great, as you know. Uh, um, uh, I really feel like this past year was probably about as challenged as we've ever been. Uh, and, and we had some, some things fall right for us late. But next year certainly will be. Uh, and there's, you know, K-State could be picked to win it. I mean, they, if, I was, uh, if I was picking it, I, I mean, I'll definitely pick them first in my preseason poll. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, Iowa State, from an appearance standpoint, maybe a little down last year. But, they, hey, they have had an unbelievable recruiting class, you know, and, and they basically kind of locked up Chicago this past uh, year. And, and if they return four starters off with, with, to go along with that, I mean, they're a team that could certainly make a run. And there's others as well. West, Bob's always going to be good at West Virginia and, and whatnot. But, but uh, Shock will be good at Texas. Beard went to the lead eight. He'll be good. Uh, uh, Jamie, what a job he's doing at TC. You can just go lawn, you know, went to Final Four a couple years ago, and they, and, and Mike Boynton's probably doing as good a job as anybody in our league. So, and, and I may may mention everybody, but it, it'll be it'll be hard to win. But it's it's hard every year. Schedule is always tough. Non conference. That's what you've done every time at, at Kansas. What jumps out at you? At what you have in the non conference that you guys have uh, essentially set up at this juncture? Well, uh, the, the our SEC. Big 12 Challenge game has not come out yet. So, you know, who knows where that'll be. But we know it'll be a road game. Uh, and then you throw in uh, Michigan State uh, in the Champions Classic. You throw in Villanova at home. You know, you're going to Arizona State. you got Stanford at home. And, the, and then, you know. Uh, uh, NIT, right? Preseason NIT. And, and we know that Louisville and Tennessee and, and Marquette are in that field uh, for sure. So just to, when you talk about the. The, the 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 ones that people nationally would recognize. I mean, that's a pretty loaded schedule, and we still don't know who we're playing out of the SEC. So so uh, uh, it'll be a difficult schedule, especially with the young group. Just two national issues here. One, uh, the Supreme Court's decision uh, that's going to open sort of potential sports betting, you know, state by state basis. How do you think that potentially could affect college basketball, uh, and what maybe needs to be done at the federal level in terms of safeguards? You know that that's a that's a great question and a good point. Uh, I'm hoping it doesn't affect us negatively at all. I, you know, I know I know there's very valid reasons why the courts would make that decision to allow states to to do different things, but the reality of it is some some of the most embarrassing black eyes that uh, collegiate athletics has experienced has been through. Uh, 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 sports wagering and and and, and uh, that stuff, and so you know that we we've got plenty of safeguards in now, but but you know everything will be definitely uh, uh, amped up, heightened security, so to speak, and, and all schools are going to need to do a great job on educating their athletes or the families around the athletes, all these things, because you know at whatever level they've been approached in the past, that is certainly going to go up. And, and lastly, Bill, the NBA draft rule. Uh, in terms of, we don't know what's going to happen with the one and done, but it can't change for this year. But if you are in the draft, get undrafted, and go back to school, uh, but that's being discussed. Uh, how would you like to see that be tweaked, or where would you fall into that if it is implemented in some form? Well, I, that, that's one that I think I could change my mind daily on that one. Uh, you know, I, I do think kids and families deserve freedom to make their own choices. I do think with freedom will come many, many bad decisions that could certainly impact kids negatively uh, uh, over time. I don't think we want to have a system in place that, at least this is my opinion, that 
you know, everybody at age ninth and 10th grade think, well, I can just go uh, apply for the draft. And if I don't make it, I can just go do this. I think that certainly de-emphasizes education and things like that. So th- there's got to be some balance that works out that that's obviously good for the elite, but also good for everybody. And, and, and it doesn't promote uh, poor decision making to the point where, you know, there's, you know, kids could actually uh, uh, throw away their professional opportunities by thinking that they need to take that opportunity. Uh, uh, and we have to do a great job of educating. And I'm sure the NBA will be would be totally on board with, with, with helping the colleges do that. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Up next here on March Madness 365, St. Joseph's head coach, Phil Martelli. Now joining me here on March Madness 365, St. Joseph's head coach, Phil Martelli. Phil, um, I kind of think back to your run in 04 when you got to the Elite Eight as a little bit of a precursor to what we saw whether it's, and I'm not equating necessarily you guys with VCU, George Mason, uh, Wichita, you know, even Gonzaga, uh, but Loyola, I mean, I could keep going. I mean, they, they keep popping up every once in a while or every couple of years, it seems. H- how much has that trend continued to where everyone, for the most part, has a chance now? Well, I think everybody has a chance, particularly in the one and done, because the, all those programs that you mentioned throw in Davidson. All of those programs have a chance to have an older guy or an older team. Even to the point, Andy, to be honest with you, Villanova won this year because they were older. They were, yes, they were better than everybody else, but they were older. Five of those six guys had redshirted. So uh, age is a factor in college basketball, and I think it's the beauty of of only five guys on your team. You're not going to see that in uh, as good as uh, Central Florida was in football. They couldn't play Alabama. They couldn't play Clemson. It's just a different uh, metric. And in basketball, you know, superstars, Jameer Nelson, Steph Curry, all along those lines, everybody, every one of those teams has had, like, this guy, this dude that the other kids could jump on the on the backs of. Well, Mason and VCU, and I would argue Loyola did not. I mean, a lot of it is matchups and what happens, but I always remember – when I was with you in that Elite Eight at the Meadowlands, I remember you saying to me at that point, like, you don't know if you're ever going to be there again. But and, and I know you guys haven't been to that level, but you've been close where you've you know, had uh, you know, wins in the NCAA tournament. Um, but how much have we seen the last couple of years that, that you can get back there? Oh, I think it, it's all um, it invigorates you. And really, for a guy like me, I wake up and say, how do we get our team to the Final Four? And use these roadmaps, use these lanterns and say, if I follow that path and I study all those teams and say, how did, how did that happen? And I think the, the, the ones from, let's say, our pool, our end of the pool, Gonzaga, they went to the deep end of the pool. Butler with Brad Stevens went to the deep end of the pool. But you study all of these other teams and say, well, how did they how did they recruit? What's their player development like? And, uh, no, you, you make a really, really strong point that we're no longer surprised when a team of the non-Power 5 leagues makes the hard run. Now, you've coached for a long time at a Catholic school. In the last couple of years, we've had Gonzaga play for the national championship, Jesuit school out in Spokane. Villanova has won two national championships 
Loyola gets to the Final Four, uh, is there a little bit of a renaissance, if you will, of, for the Catholic schools? Well, I like to lean on the Jesuit schools uh, with Loyola and Gonzaga, and then I lean on the Philadelphia aspect of it. Uh, but it's clear. It, it's, it's, um, it's certainly recruiting, certainly player development. It's certainly your school's conviction that this is really important. And all of these schools have made that made that a paramount that success in men's basketball is paramount to the school's success. So let's look at the A ten. There's been years where it's been deep, four or five bids, and then the last couple of years, you know, it's been shrunk up to to two essentially. You know, there was a little bit of a fear that it might only be one, but it ended up being two. But quality at the top. What needs to change in the A ten to get back to where you could have those years where it can be four or five? Well, I think that's a hard question because I do believe that the Power Five have come up with the formula, and now they're upping the ante by going to twenty league games, but. When you look at the Atlantic 10 last year, non-conference strength of schedule, three. But we had seven teams, 175 or greater in the RPI. Now they're going to change the metric, but it's, all going to, it's, it's still going to stay the same. I've said this for years, Andy. I'll say it again. I've said it this past week at the Atlantic 10 coaches meetings and AD meetings. We have to win our 50-50 games. So a 50-50 game for Fordham, who are still building their program, is different than a 50-50 game for VCU. You, you have to win those games. And they did the numbers. We were, we were 27 and 42 in quadrant two and three. Well, that's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable to be 27 and 42 because those are 50-50 games. I, no matter who they – if it was St. Joseph's against Temple, that's a 50-50 game, and we lost it. And I should, Let me correct myself. I mean, it could have been one at one point this season. It ended up being three because of Davidson you know, beating Rhode Island in, in the Atlantic 10 uh, Conference tournament. So let's look ahead, first of all, to next season. You know, you guys, if you can – the big if, if you can stay healthy, because that's been a huge issue for you guys. W- what's your level of optimism at this juncture? Well, I'm always optimistic, but I'm also realistic. I, I think that – you know what? We have work to do this summer in utilizing this great rule of time with our players. We have to make sure that our guys who are injured realize that it's just about getting ready for the first game next year. It's not about getting ready for the 30 games they lost, or in some cases, 60 games that guys have lost. But I like the group that I have. I like the fact that we're going to be together for two years, basically. And uh, age is going to be a factor. And the push at the end of the year when we won seven out of our last nine games, that's going to help us because they feel better than last year at this time. Everybody was down in the dumps because we didn't know who was coming back when. And uh, this year we have a clearer picture that when we start on, on June 30th with our summer workouts, everybody will be full bore. The biggest shocker toward the end of the season was the manner in which you crushed Rhode Island on their senior night. Uh, when you look back at that game, uh, where was that or maybe earlier in the season, you know, in terms of what this team was capable of? Well, we had been playing better at the, at the end of the year. And I think when you factor in the emotion of senior night, I mean, Danny Hurley was crying on the floor before the game as guys were being introduced. I've been there. I've been there. My, my last two Atlantic 10 championship teams in 14 and 16, we both lost on senior day because it was too emotional. So that was part of it. That doesn't minimize. We, we played really well, and we had a formula for playing against their aggressive 
really come at you uh, man-to-man style. And we also caught them when they when they were in a drought in terms of making perimeter shots. We played 40 minutes of zone and won a game by 30 points. It was an extraordinary uh, opportunity for the players and an, had a great memory for that team. So if you had to pick someone right now, who would be the favorite next season? Who would it be? Politically? In the A-10. <laughs> Politically? I think St. Louis is going to be very good. And... I think everybody in the country is going to be paying attention to Davidson because those two guards, John Axel and Kellen Grady, Kellen Grady is um, a possibility of leaving school early. He is that gifted. But if you go around the league and you ask the coaches at this point in time, they're going to also say St. Joseph's is in that mix. You have had uh, as close a view of Villanova of any other coach because you've played them so often you've seen Jay Wright build it from when it was a little shaky early when he got there to now arguably maybe the most dominant program uh, in the country at this juncture what have you seen from your vantage point in the city as to how they've gotten it done first of all they do they do have a Villanova way and whether it's the smallest of things everybody on their team jump stops everybody on their team shot fakes everybody does the exact same thing they really do have a spirit within their group that some teams most teams don't have because this is an ego-driven sport and egos and agendas get in the way that at Villanova he has gotten it to the point where that has not happened I think what he did earlier the the uh, Final Four t- team in Detroit. There were no pros. Uh, Dante Cunningham ended up making the NBA free agent. Uh, no pros. You know, Randy Foy had a long career. And then it started to build and build and build consistency, class, style, and there's no confusion. There's no confusion. It is about the team at Villanova. Realistic. What's the future of the Big Five format? Uh, I think the Big Five format is here to stay. I think the only challenges that will come into play would be if the AAC went to 20 games, if the Big East goes to 20 games. Does that impact? And, and again, Villanova has to challenge because Villanova, as you well know, could play in every TV-created event to get to 31 games. I think that the proposal that's out there to go to 31 games is going to be beneficial to the big five always listening always willing to have conversations about tournaments and and pool play and and all those kind of things but we don't have the right as the coaches today the athletic directors today we we were given the keys to the big five house we were told we could move in we were told we could paint it anyway any color we wanted but be sure don't burn it down we're not burning that down but how much would you like to see it because i know villanova would at a certain point in the season. I mean, they do. T- Villanova does tend to sort of group their games together, uh, whether that's at the beginning, you know, the holidays. I mean, how much would you like to say, okay, this is the designated time where we're going to play this stretch all, of games? I'm all in on that, Andy. I, I think that would be a great. If you could get Philadelphia thinking beyond the Super Bowl champion Eagles. I had to put that in there, though. You know they won the Super Bowl. Uh, if you could get people to think this is the college basketball 10-day window, 12-day window, it would help all of us, to be honest with you, because we do get swallowed up. We get, we get swallowed up by Eagle Mania, uh, which is really 365. But we get swallowed up by that. Not so much the 76ers. That, that's a work in progress each year. But I would like to see us get that focus on 
the big five, not just Villanova or not just the St. Joe people being interested in St. Joe's. So if somebody said to me, hey, would you be opposed to a triple header at the Wells Fargo with Drexel being the 16th? No, I'm in. Would you like to see uh, all the games go back to the Plester uh, for a nostalgic field? Yeah, I'd be in for all that. I think that as long as the athletic directors will keep talking and keep fleshing out ideas, I think anything's possible. You know, we're taping this before Jameer Nelson gets his degree. Uh, so I definitely want to get your thoughts on this. You know, what he has meant to this university and the, the commitment it, that it takes really of, a, of an NBA player to come back and earn that degree years later. He's done an awful lot of things. He's done an awful lot of things for the school, my program, myself, my family. This is the most extraordinary accomplishment of his unbelievable career. He's a couple points short of 10,000 NBA points. He's played in the NBA Finals. He made an all-star game. He's going to cross over $100 million made to play basketball. Two summers ago, when he looked me in the eye and he said, I want to do this for my children, I got chills. And as I processed this, as he went through these five or six courses online and he was telling me his grades and telling me his progress and working the plan. It, it's just extraordinary. Having that young guy in my life has been an absolute blessing and I cannot wait until he crosses that stage because on the other side of that stage, I'm going to be there to hug him and to tell him as, as I always do that I love him. Appreciate it, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for including me. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. As always, check out all our social media platforms on NCAA.com, on Turner, certainly the Turner Podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, we want to make sure that you're updated on college basketball throughout the course of the calendar year. I'm your host, Andy Katz. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.